Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. I'm super excited this morning that I have with me Dr. Matthew Collins, who is one of the Commonwealth's leading uh, academics and practitioners in the law of defamation. Dr. Collins studied law and arts at Adelaide University. After graduating, he was an associate to Justice uh, Donald M. Ryan of the Federal Court of Australia in Melbourne and a solicitor at Mellison Stevens Jacks, now known as King and Wood Mellisons. Dr. Collins was admitted to practice as a lawyer in 1994. He became a barrister in 1999. He was appointed senior counsel in 2011, uh, changing to Queen's counsel in 2014. Matt holds a PhD from Melbourne University and has widely published his PhD thesis inspired his first book, The Law of Defamation and the Internet. Uh, which ran into three editions and is a standard international text on the application and principles of defamation law to online publications. He also wrote Collins on Defamation, a leading text on the law in England and Wales. Matt Collins has written widely in other areas, including freedom of speech in the age of terrorism and marriage equality. Dr Collins appears and advises in all areas of commercial media and information technology law. Matt has appeared at both the appellant and trial level in many of the most significant defamation cases and free speech cases in Australia in the past generation. Several important competition law cases and related cases and countless commercial disputes. Some significant cases Dr Collins has acted in included Andrew Bolt's trial for racial discrimination, the Joe Hockey and Fairfax Media treasure for sale litigation and actress Rebel Wilson's defamation case against Bayer Media. He's also appeared in several royal commissions both as counsel assisting and lead counsel for affected parties. Dr Collins is a senior fellow at Melbourne Law School and he's a fellow of the Australian Academy of Law a member of the Council of the Australian Institute of Judicial Administration. With his partner, Dr Collins has established a scholarship for disadvantaged students in his father's name. Dr Collins is a former member of the Council of the Victorian Bar and has served as president, as its president from 2017 to 2019. He's currently a vice president of the Australian Bar Association. In 2019, Dr Collins was made a member of the Order of Australia for significant services to law, to legal standards and to education. Welcome, Matt. How are you today? Oh, you make me sound very old, Chris. I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, I, look, I have to say, I think there's going to be a lot of overachievers feeling uh, quite the underachiever, uh, having gone through all of that. It's quite a significant testament to what someone can achieve in 25 years. That is, uh, that, that's quite stunning that you have managed to be able to go through all of that. And I do also, at the same time, I mentioned the book that you've written, Collins on Defamation. It's not light reading. It's quite the tomb, and uh, <laughs> and I, and I it just I, to think that you were able to do all of that and write that book is extraordinary. Um, I call well it done. my um, I, I call it my modestly titled text, Collins on Defamation. You're quite <laughs> right. It's not light reading. Um, anyone who suffers from insomnia, however, or needs a, a brick-like book to hold a door open, um, I can thoroughly recommend it. Oh, look, actually, there's, look, there's some fantastic material in your book. It, it's certainly one that I'd recommend anyone who's practising in, in common law, particularly, obviously, defamation, that they should have in their library. It is, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, wealth of information in there. Matt, I wanted to start off uh, today by just 
saying we've gone over what you've done in the last uh, over quarter of a century, but uh, why the law? What what, what attracted you to, to legal practice? Um, it, it, it probably sounds corny, but I think like most of the law students and, and young people, I've been attracted to it by the opportunity to actually make a difference in people's lives. I mean, it, does, it does sound corny, but I really mean it. Um, one of the, and and it's, it's sort of proven over time for me that uh, people come to see lawyers not because they want to, but because they have to. You know, something's gone wrong in your life or your business. Uh, a dispute has arisen that you can't solve by yourself and you need, you need help in order to resolve it. And you know, good, good, good lawyers never lose sight of the fact that we're there to make the lives of our clients better, to, to help them solve problems that they haven't been able to solve themselves. And I think even as a, as a, a high school student, that, that was what attracted me to it. But that, that plus the fact that um, I don't like the side of blood, so medicine was never an option. Okay. No. Well, look, I mean, you've hit on some um, important topics here. I mean, one of the things, Matt, you have raised is, is the issue of disputes. And... Of course, you'll know, and, and anyone who practices as a lawyer or, or is needed to use a lawyer, that you know disputes are inherently very difficult and distressing situations. Um, I'm not sure about you, Matt. I've, I've never had anyone say to me that they enjoyed a dispute and they're looking forward to the next one. But being able to help guide and assist clients through to come out the other end of a dispute is is certainly something that is uh, is, is fundamentally important, particularly in a in a civilized society. Uh, you talk quite a bit in your book, and you make a lot of the points, that defamation is an area which is somewhat unique in terms of dispute resolution because it has been, to a large extent, evolved and created by a very small group of members at the bar who are acting for a small segment of society, either usually a media outlet or a high net individual who can afford to run a defamation claim through. Do, do you see that as, as being a, a problem in terms of the development of the law of defamation? Yeah, I do. Um, I think it's, a, it's, it's part of it. It's the genius and the curse of the common law at the same time. So the common law evolves um, by reference to the cases which fall for consideration by courts. And those cases are not representative in any field of um, any, any branch of the law. But in defamation law, they tend to be the cases, you know, most cases settle, of course, as they do in every other branch of the law, but the cases that find their way to judicial determination tend to be those that are distorted in some way. They're not representative because the representative cases resolve themselves. And I think we saw this particularly over the last 20 years in the seismic shift from um, legacy media to online media. Courts have constantly been behind the eight ball trying to catch up with the technology, you know, futile exercise to catch up with the technology, but reasoning in the common law way by analogy from legacy media. I remember when I wrote the second edition of my internet book, Sir David Eby of the English um, High Court uh, wrote the foreword, and he had this wonderful line where he looked at um, the leading Australian decision um, of the internet era, Nick and Dow Jones in the High Court, and he gave it an almighty whack. He said, look, the problem with this is it is reasoning by analogy as if the internet is just the modern equivalent of sending a postcard from the seaside. And he's right, you know, in the cases about um, search engines and so on online, judges compare Google with the card catalogue you find in an old-fashioned library. 
mean, they've got nothing nothing in common at all um, beyond the, super, the superficial. Um, so I do I do think that um, you know, from time to time the common law needs to be corrected by legislative intervention, and we've seen that of course in New Zealand through um, the, the 1992 legislation there, which was way ahead of its time. We've had a round of um, reform in Australia just in the last month or so, coming into force on the 1st of July in Australia. You know, trying to drag this branch of the law into the 21st century. In England, you know, they had the culmination of um, about 20 years of. Um, uh, debate uh, resulting in their Defamation Act of 2013. So I think the, co- the common law can't be left on its own to uh, grapple with these, um, these developments. Yes, um, I mean, you, you mention in your book, um, you quote David Ipp from his article in the Australian Law Journal back in 2007, themes of uh, the law of torts, that the law of defamation is really sort of, it could be called the Galapagos Islands division of the law of torts, <laughs> Because it's kind of evolved on its own, and um, there's legal forms and practices unknown anywhere else with its own dialect and adopted esocentric customs. Do you, I mean, do you think that's a fair description? I think it's a fantastic description. In fact, I tried to come up with my own equivalent, and I came up with Frankenstein's monster. So I said it's you know, at its core, if you could strip away all of the bells and whistles that have been sort of riveted onto it over time, you would find a coherence cause of action, but because the law has evolved, as I said before, to deal with the sort of piecemeal cases that fall for determination in the common law system, and then um, legislative reforms which are you know, seen to be neither here nor there, you've ended up with this incoherent, I call it Frankenstein's monster. Um, David, it was getting a slightly different point, which is that for some reason, um, lots of the principles that have developed in defamation law, even though defamation is a tort, bear little relationship to the corresponding principles that would apply in, say, negligence or trespass. Um, so, for example, we have this obsession, particularly in Australian defamation law, less so in New Zealand than England, but this obsession with identifying the imputations which are said to be carried by defamatory content. And um, this has resulted in this endless refinement of pleadings and interlocutory stouches, which are really unknown in other branches of the law. Now, it's still very common to have interrogatories in defamation law in Australia. Interrogatories have been all but abolished in the rest of the law 20, 25 years ago. Yes. Well, look, while you're commenting on um, the complexities of it, I, and going back to your me- Frankenstein's monsters metaphor, which I think is spot on, um, you do make the point in your book that to a large extent, you know, the reforms, uh, particularly in, in England, are very much a transplant of the organs of Frankenstein's uh, monster, or somewhat of a, a grafting, rather than a complete let's start from scratch and write something that is coherent. Yes, I think, I think that's right. If I had a blank sheet of paper, I, I really would start again with this branch of law. You go back to you know, the origins of um, libel and slander go back to the Middle Ages, um, before, before that to Roman law. Um, nowadays, I think if you were starting from scratch, you would recognise that defamation law involves seeking to balance two fundamental rights when they come into conflict. The right to reputation is terribly important 
and the right to freedom of expression, you know, one of the, one of the most fundamental of all rights. When you look at the way in which the elements of the cause of action are formulated and the defences, you see very little reference to either of those two concepts, even though that is what the cause of action is all about. So I would adopt sort of a, a rights-based analysis if I was starting from scratch. I think it's sort of the way the European Court of Human Rights would do it, um, or the way in which actually English law has evolved to deal with questions of privacy through the misuse of private information taught that um, has emerged in the last 20 years or so. You look at the dispute in question, you've asked yourself, has this damaged the plaintiff's reputation in some way and how? And then you would say, has this, would granting a remedy to the plaintiff undermine freedom of expression in some way which uh, we ought to be protecting that expression? And then you would balance those rights against each other in order to work out the result in the individual case. And so that's how the, English, the European Court of Human Rights scrutinises defamation verdicts from countries all over Europe. Um, I, I would start, if started from scratch, I would start with that analysis rather than starting from this middle. Yeah, well, look, that's, that's an interesting point when you say a rights-based approach. So Robert Stevens, who's a professor at uh, Oxford University, in his book, Torts and Rights, it, he, he very much advocates that we really should be looking at changing the way in which torts are addressed in terms of compensation. And the question should be asked, has a right actually been infringed rather than the compensatory approach that's that's taken? Is, is that what I understand you to be saying, Matt? I think so. I mean, the, the, the blunt instrument of um, the, the, the remedy that's available for tortious misconduct in our system is an award of damages. Now, uh, you know, notoriously, you no know, sum of money can restore uh, you know, a lost limb in a workplace accident, nor can a sum of money restore reputation. You know, reputation is restored by fundamentally the verdict of the court declaring that you've been wrongly defamed. In the France, uh, for example, uh, defamation cases are dealt with a bit like speeding tickets. There are misdemeanours, uh, there are fines prescribed, they dealt with very quickly and simply, and the verdict of the court serves as vindication together with the payment of a fine. In our system, by contrast, we have this enormously complicated tort. In really serious cases, and in the Australian context, you think of uh, Geoffrey Rush's fight against uh, uh, the uh, Daily Telegraph, you would think of um, Rebel Wilson's fight against our media, those sorts of cases, they often take 18 months to reach trial or longer and cost many hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars in legal costs. So I do question whether a tortious remedy is the right way to, um, to, 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 the right way to set about restoring something which cannot never fully be restored by the damaged reputation. Okay, well, uh, that leads to the important question of access to justice. I mean, for most people, these sorts of cases are completely uh, not an option for them. The, the cost of running a case like that is, is uh, would, would just be well beyond their means. Are you suggesting that we really need to be looking at some other mechanism that will help deal with uh, where someone's reputation has been wrongfully damaged? Yes, I've long advocated that the balance is just too complicated in defamation. In the modern era, you know, reputations are destroyed in a heartbeat by material which is published online. The only effective remedy is to have the material pulled down as quickly as possible, 
or if it can't be pulled down to get an adjudication from a court which declares not that you've been defamed or that the defences have failed, but rather something has been said about you which is false. And that's the thing which you can then point to in order to rehabilitate your reputation or mitigate the consequences um, that might follow from the publication. Actually, in uh, New South Wales in the mid-1990s, the New South Wales Law Reform Commission came to the exact same conclusion. Uh, they said what you need is a simplified remedy in the lower courts, magistrates' courts, local courts, um, awarding a declaration of falsity where something which is actual, not opinion-based, and false has been published and is demonstrably false. A simple remedy in a lower court of a declaration of falsity would go a very long way towards granting the, the, the relief that most plaintiffs actually seek. I think that's a terrific idea. Um, I sort of ducked it off a couple of years ago and advocated for it publicly in Australia without getting much traction. Um, I think, again, because this is an area of law which has been captured by a pretty, pretty small community of people who are trained in its arcane ways and who actually make a pretty good living out of it, and, and, and including myself in that. Well, going back to the two competing and certainly in conflicted interests, one of the protection of reputation, the other side is the um, freedom of expression. Dealing with protection of reputation, do you, do you have a view on whether or not some thought should be given to the law changing so that it's the protection of a justifiable reputation? Because at the moment, once a plaintiff establishes that they've been defamed, the onus shifts, of course, to the defendants to make out their defences plaintiff does not have the onus to prove the falsity, that being that the defamatory statement was false. Rather, it sits squarely with the defendant to prove the truth of the statement. Matt, what's your view on the onus sitting with the defendant to have to prove truth if they're going to run truth as a defence? There are two presumptions in defamation law that I think most people would find pretty surprising. Now, the first presumption is that everything published which is defamatory is false. That's the presumption, and it's then for the defendant to prove truth or another defence that prints a principle of truth. The second, I think most people will find that surprising, that you know, everything you read in your daily newspaper, which is critical um, and much material, is because we rely on our media to shine a light on uh, misconduct and abuse of power. You know, the idea that everything is presumed to be false, I think, is a surprising presumption. But the second presumption is that any defamatory material has caused damage to reputation. And look, we know in the real world that that's not true. Um, and take, for example, a lot of material which is published on social media. Of course, it can be very damaging. Of course, it can destroy reputations. But just as often, you know, a tweet posted uh, at uh, you know, two plus one has disappeared under an avalanche of the material five minutes later or has been the result of a pile on by people so that the author of the tweet's reputation suffers more than the target of the tweet. But our law doesn't grapple with any of those nuances because we simply presume that the publication has caused damage. Um, I think that does, and you know, allied to that, a damages award in a defamation case is not just about um, damage to reputation, it also compensates for hurt feelings. And increasingly, and more so again in the Australian context and the New Zealand context or the English context, the cause of action has, in some cases, I think, become a cause of action for hurt feelings, a cause of action for having been offended rather than having actually suffered damage to reputation. 
I think that's a I think that's a bad thing because I think it's it, it, it undermines the, the genuine value and freedom of expression. And you know, Australia, unique of all of the Western democracies, um, has no Bill of Rights, no, no no fundamental charter of rights, no statement of national values, which enables us to um, place these verdicts through a rights-focused lens. And New Zealand, of course, has its, has its Bill of Rights. Canada has its Charter of Rights and Freedoms. England has its Human Rights Act, now protected also by the European Court of Human Rights. The United States has its Bill of Rights and its First Amendment. You know, old Australia really is sort of the last bastion of a 19th century approach towards um, to, towards this question. Well, well, your point about hurt feelings, I mean, that certainly can take us to uh, w- one of your more notable cases, which was the uh, Rebel Wilson defamation case against Bayer Media. Now, just for those listening in, uh, this is a 2017 case where perhaps, Matt, you could you could just give us a brief summary of, of what uh, Bayer Media had said about your client. So, something we know, Rebel Wilson's a, uh, an Australian actress who um, has, has made it very big in the United States, but also in, in Australia. And she's the subject of a series of articles in the glossy women's magazines in Australia, published by our media, a number of titles. And um, Rebel's complaint was that the articles portrayed her as having, in effect, invented her backstory, having lied about everything that had made her a success. Um, of course, there were imputations beyond that as well, but that was that, that was the dispute at its core. I think that involved uh, that also that also involved. Uh, they claimed that she had made up her name and her age. Was it was that part of it? Yeah, that's right. That she'd lied about her name. She'd lied about her age. She'd lied about her upbringing um, in order to make herself more interesting and more saleable in Hollywood. Was the was the essence of it? So Rebel sued for defamation. Our media um, defended the case pretty vigorously, obviously very vigorously, including defences of truth and qualified privilege. And the case was heard before a jury, and the jury rejected those defences. And so Rebel had a uh, had a comprehensive victory. And at first instance, actually, she was a bit too successful. Really, um, she uh, recovered. Uh, from the trial judge in Australia, the judge awards the damages even where the jury has determined the verdict. The judge awarded her an eye-watering sum of money, um, including damages for uh, lost economic uh, economic loss. And the case then went on appeal. Bauer Media took it on appeal, and the court of appeal reversed the decision in relation to economic loss. And so she ended up, of course, still vindicated and recovering uh, damages, uh, general damages that still remain pretty close to the Australian record. Yes, so the general damages uh, fits in with point about hurt feelings. I think at first instance it was 650000 and the Court of Appeal reduced yes. it by 50000 down to six hundred. I mean, that's really a token reduction, $50,000 to six hundred. But I guess that's the way in which the Court of Appeal saw it. And I understand well, that was. You need to know in, in Australian law, there is in the legislation that's just been amended in the last month or so that there's a cap on damages for economic loss, which um, is at the moment about $430,000. At the time, I think it was about $360,000. And so to receive almost double the cap showed that puts it right up there with the most significant damages awards in, in Australian defamation history. There are a couple of cases which have exceeded it. You know, Jeffrey Rush, I think, recovered $750,000. Uh, the case uh, involving the Wagner family uh, suing Alan Jones and 
like a Sydney radio station, they recovered about $900,000 a piece. So you see, the damage to the water is very, very substantial in the serious defamation cases in Australia. The legislature has intervened, um, and as of the 1st of July, the cap on damages in the legislation, which is currently $432,000, is said now to be reserved for the most serious cases and only able to be exceeded uh, to the extent that, that aggravated damages warrant, uh, warrant the cap being breached. So we won't see damages at that level again in Australia, I don't think. Yeah, which raises the question about the economic efficiency of bringing cases because uh, I think the Rebel Wilson case at first instance, that, that was a three-week trial, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, about 15 days before a jury, and then, of course, it went off on appeal, uh, then um, went on a special leave application to Australia's highest court, the High Court. Uh, yes, um, you know, m- m- millions of dollars being spent over what was, at the end of the day, a damages award of $600,000. Yeah, it's very, I mean, it's, it's very difficult when, you, when you're getting into those sorts of numbers. Now, I just want to ask you, another reform area in the UK was uh, introducing sort of some minimum limits. I, I think to a large extent, would you agree it was in response to the courts, the English court's decision in Jamal, um, where that great statement came out that the case wasn't worth its work, let alone the candle? Um, those reforms, uh, do you, have, they, have they proven to reduce the amount of uh, somewhat frivolous litigation and defamation? Yes, so... What happened was, as you say, there was a line of authorities about cases which were relatively trivial in England. The famous statement was, this case is not only worth the candle, it's not even worth the wick to deal with those cases where the damage was extremely limited or the publication was extremely limited or the uh, defamatory stings were relatively trivial. Um, I think that has led to, um, along with other reforms, to a bit of a drying up of the jurisdictions in England. I had some analysis done actually a couple of years ago um, about the number of defamation cases in England versus Australia. And when you adjusted it per capita, there were about 10 times more defamation cases in the Superior Courts in Australia than in England. And it's a really stunning number. And more than half of those cases in Australia are in one single state, New South Wales. Um, so you know, my contention has long been that Australia is the, uh, the defamation capital of the world and, and or Sydney is the libel capital. Um, Australia has just copied the English reform by, uh, again, with effect from the 1st of July, uh, establishing as an element of the cause of action for defamation that publication has caused or is likely to cause serious harm or in the case of a corporate plaintiff has caused or is likely to cause serious financial harm. So we'll see in time whether that reform in Australia dampens the number of cases in this jurisdiction. Um, for myself, I doubt it because I think it's a relatively low bar to say that a defamatory publication has caused or is likely to cause serious harm. But most online publications, for example, and certainly all mainstream media publications will be likely easily to surpass that, uh, that, that threshold. Um, it might have, a, it might, might have a dampening impact on, uh, uh, on, uh, on cases beginning in the first place. Yeah, and of course for um, profit-making enterprises, uh, I, I believe they've got to establish a serious loss as well. Yeah, so in Australia, uh, going back now uh, 15 years, most corporations have lost their ability to sue for defamation. 
uh, only small companies and not-for-profits, basically companies with 10 or fewer employees at the time of publication and not-for-profits have a right to sue for defamation. Corporations otherwise lost their right to sue for defamation Australia-wide in 2005 and in New South Wales a bit earlier than that. So corporations which suffer reputational damage have to sue under alternative causes of action like uh, injurious or malicious falsehood or some statutory remedy like misleading or deceptive conduct. Yes, now you, you point about the number of cases in, in the great state of uh, New South Wales. Fun fact is that uh, New South Wales uh, is second only to the great state of uh, California in terms of being uh, the most uh, litigious state uh, per capita in the world. Um, it just happens to be somewhere where there's a lot of work. <laughs> I do want to just ask you a question about a, another high-profile case of yours, except this time I guess you were at the, the other council bench acting for the defendant, and that's the uh, the Joe Hockey case where the uh, the treasurer for sale uh, litigation. Now, mm. in, in that case, really, that, that was somewhat unique because it focused, or the outcome was, on the way in which the billboards and the tweets were were published rather than the actual article itself. Uh, can, you, can you help explain that? Yeah, so um, this is the, 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 the broadsheet uh, daily in Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the Canberra Times had done some page one investigative pieces about uh, basically uh, the way in which fundraising was done by uh, um, Joe Hockey through a, uh, a fundraising body centred on his electorate, so he's been electorate in Sydney. And so long, it was long-form journalism, um, and the, the thing that got the newspapers into trouble was their headline, Treasurer for Sale. Uh, what they were actually saying in the body of the articles was that um, by making donations to this political funding body, um, people, businesses and others could get access to the then Federal Treasurer, hence Treasurer for Sale. Um, Hockey complained that this conveyed that he was corrupt, that he was taking bribes. Of course, to say that someone for sale is capable of conveying that someone is taking bribes. At the end of the case, um, uh, the newspapers, the defendants, succeeded in relation to the journalism. So the long-form articles in the newspapers were found not to defame Hockey in the way in which he alleged. But they, uh, the newspapers went down on those on the posters that were used to advertise the. Uh, newspapers at the kiosks, you know, treasurer for sale, because devoid of the content contained in the articles, just those three words on the uh, posters, so the judge said, conveyed an imputation of bribery. Uh, and similarly, tweets um, which um, promoted the articles and contained links to the articles, but uh, did not give the content of the articles, obviously, in their in, in the post themselves, was said to convey that imputation as well. So, Hockey uh, uh, recovered, I think, $200,000 by way of damages in relation to the poster and the tweets, but lost in relation to the long-form journalism. Can I ask, and I mean, you're always at liberty to, to decline, but how, how was the experience cross-examining a, a, a then-treasurer of Australia? <laughs> well, I think you're right, I probably shouldn't buy him, but, um, but it's, it's a rare thing for a barrister to... Uh, cross-examine the sitting treasurer of the country. And um, the thing I remember most about it, Chris actually is, uh, I think it was 2015, so a while ago in terms of um, 
you know, social media and so on, that we were in court and there were journalists in the courtroom tweeting um, a question and answer you know, as, as the case was unfolding. I, I, I live in Melbourne, I was in Sydney for the case and I went back to my room at the end of the day and my email inbox was full of messages uh, from you know, helpful members of the public giving me tips on how I might cross examine the treasurer the following morning. Most of it was completely nutty, but actually there was one tip that turned out to be useful, that the treasurer had said something in answer to a question and, and someone had pointed me to some other material online that I could use to follow to ask some follow-up questions the following morning. And uh, I remember at the time thinking that this might be the, the new normal if um, cases are in effect being followed question by question, answer by answer in real time, you know, this will become an increasing phenomenon. So if you fast forward to the current era you know, in the pandemic, where many of our cases now are streamed live, this has become an increasing feature of practice for barristers, I'm sure, um, in, in, all over the common law world. I remember doing a case last year in the middle of Melbourne's long lockdown, which was being streamed, and I saw the same phenomenon, people following live, watching it as if it were court TV from a on their computer screen and then hopefully sending tips to the barristers to consider over the lecture journey. Yeah, well, well, this is the new modern age. I mean, probably one of the more high-profile cases uh, which demonstrated the way in which technology can enable participation was uh, was in the US, was uh, Washington State uh, versus uh, Donald Trump, where I think no one uh, was actually in the courtroom other than the bench. And uh, later this month, the... Uh, ACCC are running a, a very large prosecution against uh, Blue Scope Steel, and uh, they have, or the federal court has ordered that the only person who will be in the courtroom will be the judge themselves. All the lawyers, the witnesses, and everyone else will participate remotely. There is, of course, legislation that enables that on both sides of the Tasman, and then there's the Trans Tasman Mutual Recognition Act, which um, provides that witnesses can give evidence remotely on, on either side. What's been your experience with, with remote participation in, in trials? Well, look, I think we've all gotten much better at it very quickly. You can say, you know, as a, as a Melbourneian, and you know, notoriously, you know, we've suffered the most extreme and prolonged lockdowns of anywhere in, uh, in, in the Antipodes. Um, I have set foot in a courtroom, physical courtroom in Melbourne once since February 2020 and that was for a ceremonial hearing at which I made a brief speech and the only other person in the room was the, was the judge to, to hear it. But so in Melbourne we have barely gone back to um, in-person hearings and of course as we speak we're in, a, we're in our sixth lockdown uh, at the moment, you know, some in-person hearings were restored during the period when we had no COVID, um, but they were, you know, priority was given to the backlog in the criminal law. In commercial law and common law, overwhelmingly, we've continued to do remote hearings. Uh, things have been a little bit better in some of the other Australian states, and I know things have been much better in, in New Zealand. But, yeah, there, there are plenty of negatives, you know, certainly in terms of... Um, uh, you know, routine interlocutory hearings and uncontroversial matters, even appeals where witnesses are not involved, there are at, at positive advantages to doing things online. There are undoubtedly there are also disadvantages um, in terms of engagement with the bench and it's obviously very difficult in any case where witnesses need to be cross-examined and questions of credit are an issue and it's impossible in cases involving juries uh, and very difficult in the criminal law. 
So you know, I think I think you know, overall we've seen probably you know a generation's worth of progress in the space of 18 months, for better or for worse. One of the things that troubles me a bit is that I don't think we've given adequate consideration to uh, the way in which we've adapted to the online world. So thinking about the streaming of cases, you know, for a generation we have resisted allowing cameras into courtrooms to record trials in Australia, um, largely because you know we're concerned about how it will impact the way in which every player in the system operates from the judge to the barristers to the witnesses and the parties. In COVID, as a necessary corollary of keeping our courts open, uh, we simply moved to live streaming cases without any serious debate about what that might mean. And you know, my experience, I think the experience of most of our colleagues has been that the live streaming of cases does affect every aspect of the system in ways that we haven't properly analysed. Judges behave differently knowing they're being watched. Barristers, you've got to watch every roll of the eye, uh, every whispered comment to your junior, and that gets picked up and broadcast. Um, the uh, ability to cross-examine witnesses is undoubtedly affected. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think we need to have a very serious conversation about, um, uh, about how we've just gone blindly into, in, into, this, uh, into this brave new world. Yeah, it's certainly an area in which the courts are wanting to set protocols and I think all the points you're making, Matt, are actually very valid because these are probably matters that need further discussion and consideration because they do fundamentally change the way in which justice is administered. Now, I have got two areas that I wanted to just cover with you and, and one of them goes back to the, the, the issue, we are talking about Joe Hockey before and of course he's a politician, as uh, you're, you're rightly aware, New Zealand has now lost the longy form of qualified privilege. Of course, Australia has its own. But the trade-off for that is we've now acquired the Canadian uh, concept or the defence of responsible communication on a uh, matter of public interest. Now, where I wanted to go with this is, going back to your book, you were writing extensively on the English Defamation Act 2013, and of course, that codifies the Reynolds defence. Can I can I just ask you some questions about, you know, do you see whether or not there's a possibility that uh, England and maybe Australia would look at moving even further towards that concept of a, of responsible communication on a matter of public interest? Well, Australian law actually has adopted the New Zealand position with effect from the first of July. So let, let me go back a bit. So um, going back to sort of the 1990s. Um, it was realised, I think, in England, Australia and New Zealand that defamation law had to adapt to give some breathing space to the media when, despite having acted reasonably or responsibly, it got its facts wrong in the course of exposing matters of public interest. And so we had a series of cases, actually, in, in our part of the world, all involving Dave Longy, the former New Zealand Prime Minister, and he brought a case against the ABC in Australia, which led to the development of a defence which still exists in our law called the Longy Defence, which is about uh, reasonable um, communications on a question of public interest. In, uh, in New Zealand, um, he brought a series of cases called Longy and Atkinson, leading to the New Zealand version of the Longy Defence, which was a bit different from the Australian Longy Defence. Uh, and in England, at the same time, a defence called the Reynolds Defence emerged. And broadly speaking, they were all directed at the same thing, which was, as I say, giving the media some breathing space to get its facts wrong, where it acted reasonably. So despite its best efforts, 
got, got, got its facts wrong for one reason or another. The defences have been notoriously unsuccessful in Australia, a bit more successful in the UK, largely because appellate courts there kept directing uh, uh, intermediate and trial division courts to be more liberal in their application of the defence. And as you say, in New Zealand, the case, the case is called Dewey and Gardner, and the, the long defence was replaced with a responsible communication defence. In Australia, we've just gone through a round of reforms with amendments to our uniform defamation laws commencing operation on the 1st of July. And um, in that reform process, um, the, uh, those, those advocating the reforms looked at whether to adopt a statutory version of the English Reynolds defence or to retain a, a unique Australian formulation and also looked to New Zealand. And in the end, they decided to codify a statutory defence which is based very closely on Dewey and Gardner, the New Zealand defence. So, so pleasingly, these common law developments in New Zealand have been picked up and copied by the Australian legislatures. The, uh, the New Zealand uh, approach in Dewey and Gardner, that drew very heavily on uh, the Supreme Court of Canada in a case called Grant and Torstar Court back in 2000. Torstar, yeah. yeah. And which, uh, to a certain extent, responsible communication on a matter of public interest, um, that, that, that hasn't received in New Zealand a significant amount of attention. There's only been sort of a very handful of cases. Uh, but it appears that the, the Canadian jurisprudence will, will give some guidance. Um, do you, sort of looking in your crystal ball, you know, how, how do you see the, the new defence in Australia that will come into effect on the 1st of July? How do you see that playing out? Look, I'm pessimistic at the end of the day. I think this is a really, it's a really important question. Um, I, I, I do think we have to allow the media the space to get things wrong from time to time where the public interest in the publication is such um, that the story needs to be exposed for one reason or another. But you know, the predicate of all of these defences is that the, the, the defendant has got the facts wrong. Uh, and in any case where the defendant has got the facts wrong, the plaintiff has a genuine grievance by definition. And um, in Australia, um, you know, the question until now has been to... to balance the error against the extent of the steps taken by the media to seek to get its facts right, its reasonableness or the degree to which it was responsible. Our courts have tended to interpret those um, that, that to standard at a very high level, almost a council of perfection. Um, so I'm pessimistic that um, a, re, a statutory reformulation will lead to a practical difference. It will all depend upon whether courts can be persuaded to lower the bar for the operation of the defences. As I say, that is difficult because in every such case, the starting point is the publisher has got a fact wrong which has caused damage to the plaintiff's reputation. So you, know, you seem to persuade a court that even though the plaintiff has a genuine grievance and has suffered loss, a remedy should be denied because in the particular circumstances where public interest in freedom of expression should prevail, it's not an argument that has succeeded very much in the Australian context. Uh, yeah, it didn't even succeed, by the way, in the long case. It was you know, the, day, uh, the defences didn't operate there. Um, it's been more successful in, in England, uh, and as you say, in Canada as a result of developments in Grant and Torstar. But even then, in the Australian context, you know, there are um, incentives for courts um, which don't operate in Australia because in each jurisdiction, apart from Australia, there is a Bill of Rights to which one has regard. 
And uh, you know, I said before, Australia, the unique of the Western democracies, doesn't have doesn't have that impetus for the interpretation of legislation or the development of common law principles. With uh, in in New Zealand, with responsible communications on a matter of public interest, that public interest defence, uh, our Court of Appeal have said that the two elements to that, the first element being that it's got to be a matter of public interest, and secondly, that the media has to be responsible in the way in which they're reporting matters. The Court of Appeal have said that there are two matters that should be dealt with by a judge, whereas there was some suggestion in the in Grant and Torstar that the bench was split on this, whether the issue of public interest should be uh, left for the judge and uh, whether or not the media have been responsible should be left for a jury. What's the Australian position now on, on that particular point? So, interestingly, um, there's been a conflict in the authorities about that question, but it's been resolved in the amendments to our legislation that have come into force with effect from the 1st of July. So in Australia now, those are questions for the jury. Uh, previously, the question of whether something was in the public interest was always a matter for the judge. And actually, it dates back to the elements of the old common law defence of fair comment, which had a public interest requirement. That requirement was always a matter for uh, a question of law for the judge. For some reason, when um, when the legislation started prescribing defences containing public interest requirements, you know, courts just assumed that that should be a matter for the judge, as it was in the context of the fair comment defences. Uh, some judges in Australia were persuaded to depart from that reasoning, uh, but there was a conflict in the authorities, which has now been resolved in favour of the defence going to the jury in a case where the trial before a jury. Um, I think that's a sensible outcome. It doesn't make much sense to bifurcate the elements of a defence, leaving some to the jury and some to the judge sitting alone. And on a question of whether something is in the public interest, surely juries, as proxies for the community at large, are able to identify when matters are legitimately in the public interest. Okay, now, can I just ask you a slightly related question? I want to ask you about the defensive reportage because that almost was introduced at the same time here in New Zealand but it couldn't get quite across the line. Uh, what happened was that our Justice Brown in the Court of Appeal indicated that he thought that there could be uh, an available defensive reportage. Now, for those listening, what reportage is, it's the neutral reporting of an attributed allegation uh, without the media needing to verify it. But unfortunately, well, fortunately, depending on which way you look at it, the um, majority of the Court of Appeal and Jury and Gardner, this was French and um, Wink Hellman, who's, who's now our Chief Justice in our Supreme Court, uh, they saw that as just being part of an overall public interest uh, responsible communication on a matter of public interest defence. The UK position slightly different. Do you, do you have any views on that? So reportage, as you say, is that a relatively unusual situation where the public interest in reporting a matter resides in the fact that an allegation has been made rather than the truth of the content of the allegation. Um, so, for example, when an allegation and counter-allegation are raised by two people against each other, typically politicians from different sides of politics, you know, the, the public interest in knowing that the allegation has been made and the counter-allegation has been made simply resides in the fact of what was said rather than the truth of its contents. And so this has emerged as a common law and then as a result of the 2013 amendments in the UK as a fairly standard feature of qualified privilege defences. Um, in 
in, in principle, there's no reason why reportage defences are not consistent with um, the, 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 the defence in Julian Gardner or the statutory equivalents in Australia. It's just that um, we haven't seen them succeed in any cases in either jurisdiction. But in, in principle, the defence is sound. Um, there can be occasions where um, the, the, the public interest in, uh, in a story resides in the fact that an allegation has been made, not in the truth or otherwise of it. I thought, um, actually, in the Australian context, this might have been an argument that would have been a, that might have been available for the Australian ABC in relation to um, the um, uh, stories concerning the former Attorney General Christian Porter, um, who people will know was the subject of um, innuendo and then direct allegation of having committed historical uh, historical rape. Uh, and this story, this story had broken into the public's consciousness at some level through social media, but hadn't broken publicly. There was it was reported that a senior cabinet minister had been the subject of these allegations, but at the time, the then Attorney General wasn't named. It seemed to me in that circumstance there was absolutely a public interest in knowing simply that the allegations had been made apart from the truth of its contents, and to have the counter-allegation being the, being the denial. Of course, at the end of the day, none of that ever got tested because the, uh, the defamation case that uh, Christian Porter brought against the ABC was resolved at a pretty early stage. Yes. Now, look, one of the other, I guess you'd call it, radical reforms of the English uh, 2013 Act was the introduction of the single publication rule. Now, that doesn't uh, apply in Australia or New Zealand, that's correct, isn't it? It does now, actually. In Australia, we've got a single publication rule with respect on the 1st of July. All right, so that's coming in the 1st of July uh, reforms. Uh, of course, th- this is an area which is most prevalent in uh, on online defamation, of which you know a lot about. You've written a, you've written a book on it with, with several issues. Going back to, I guess, another area of reform in the UK is is to try and bring to an end what what some have called libel tourism, and a great example of that uh, in your hometown was the was the Gutnick case. You know, it's back in two thousand and two where uh, Gutnett sued um, the Dow Jones, the Barons Online, for the Unholy Gains article. But that's uh, an opportunity where someone can use the internet to shop around for a a suitable forum. Do you you see that there'll be any sort of more restraint on that regard in Australia? I guess there are two things. So going back to the single publication rule, so this dates back to the 19th century and where the the, the Duke of Brunswick um, had been defamed in a newspaper. And it obviously eaten away at him for 17 long years. And uh, 17 years after the article had been published, he sent his valet down to the archives to dig out a copy of the offending newspaper article. And then he sued for defamation on the basis that the defamation had been published to his valet who had gone down to search for the article. And the English court said, uh, yes, you can do that because in defamation law, the cause of action occurs at the point where the damaging material is read and comprehended by a person. And here the valet had read and comprehended it 17 years after it was first published, so no problem. Of course, in the modern era, we'd strike out a case like that as an abusive process because um, (laughs) the 
the Duke of Brunswick had in effect caused and brought about the publication by Senator Vallet. But the principle uh, has had renewed vigour in the context of the internet because overwhelmingly material on the internet is available indefinitely. And what that means is that the statute of limitations for defamation never truly expires because someone can always, 17 years after the event, um, go and go and download and read and comprehend the material, thereby giving rise to a fresh cause of action. So the solution to that problem, I think everyone recognises it is a problem, is the adoption of what's called a single publication rule, where in relation to material which is indefinitely accessible, time begins to run from the moment it first became available rather than the moment at which it was in fact downloaded and comprehended. And so that form came in in England in 2013 uh, and it came in in Australia on the 1st of July this year. So that will, I think, obviously enough, will will, um, mitigate the spectre of indefinite liability for online publishers. On the second question of libel tourism, I think that's largely overstated, you know, um, so Good, Goodnick, Diamond Joe Goodnick is a, a well-known Australian businessman. He was defamed in Barron's magazine uh, back in about 2000, a magazine published in the United States in the sense of printed, written, printed and distributed in the United States. Very few copies of Barron's magazine were available in Victoria, his home state. I think 14 copies was the evidence. Uh, it was available online many millions of subscribers, but I think like, from memory only about 300 of them in Australia. Uh, Goodnick sued in Australia and told that he was able to do that because he was an Australian. He was suing for vindication of his reputation in Australia and he was suing only in relation to such copies of the magazine and such hits on the website as had occurred in Australia. So it wasn't really a case of Bible tourism in the sense of someone travelling to another country in order to take advantage of their laws. But actually, the day after um, the High Court upheld uh, Goodnick's claim, the New York Times published a thundering editorial. I thought it was probably the only time the New York Times has bothered to report on an Australian judgment, but the editorial in the New York Times said it was a bleak day for freedom of speech. Um, implying that the decision of the Australian High Court was going to kill the internet in some way. Um, Of course, that didn't happen. And it didn't happen because, in reality, um, people don't travel to foreign countries to sue for defamation um, arising out of it to take advantage of lax laws. We we haven't had a flood of foreigners coming to Australia to sue for defamation. Um, There was a bit of a space of what was called libel tourism in England, particularly at the turn of the century, mostly Russian oligarchs who would go to England to see the defamation. That's where the expression libel tourism came from. Equally, there was a concern that uh, defendants in those cases were sometimes American publishers like Dow Jones. The American legislatures responded by passing their own laws to stop judgments in cases of libel tourism being enforceable in the United States. They actually called it libel terrorism in New York. They passed an act to to stop English defamation judgments being enforced in the United States. But by, by and large, I think that has always been overstated. Um, but you know, reforms like a single publication will you know, reduce further the prospect of abuse. Now, um, one, one area in terms of uh, going back to the single publication and the internet, of course, is is the risk of republication. It's very easy for users of the internet to, to forward links to tweets or websites, etc. Do you see? Do you think that there should really be some sort of 
restriction on the extent to which a defendant who perhaps published defamatory statement should be held liable for uh, other individuals who subsequently repeat it by forwarding the defamatory comment on to others? Well, um, so defamation law has always, sometimes we call this the great line principle or the ease of republication, that defamation law has always recognised that you are responsible for the foreseeable or natural and probable consequences of your utterance. So in the old days, if I sent a letter to the editor of the newspaper that, was defam- that defamed somebody, you know, I was responsible for um, the fact that it, it ended up being published in the newspaper and therefore got a much wider audience than just the journalist to whom or the editor to whom I'd sent my letter. Or if a uh, you know, um, television um, journalist comes to interview me and I know my interview is going to be broadcast on TV and I say something defamatory, my defamatory comment goes not just to the journalist, it goes to all of the viewers. And equally, in the online world, those, those same principles apply. So if I post something on my personal website that no one but my mother is likely to read, but it gets picked up and republished by a mainstream media um, organisation, thereby reaching millions of people, I'm responsible because I, I released the defamatory content into the wild and it's always foreseeable or a natural probable consequence that it will go further. Um, I, I think I think most people would accept that that's probably right. If you put material in the wild, uh, then uh, if it's if, if it's foreseeable or a natural and probable consequence that it will cause greater damage, then you know, it ought to be liable for that damage. Uh, Position is different if you've taken reasonable steps to stop your content from being disseminated more widely. So unforeseeable consequences, I think, are just in accordance with ordinary tortious principles or not be sheeted home to a defendant. Now, I'm just going to ask you about your taking Silk. You took uh, Silk and was appointed a senior counsel in 2011. Now, if I've got my mathematics right, that's within seven years of you uh, starting practice. Um, the average in New Zealand, I'm not sure what it is in Victoria, it's 26 years that's quite phenomenal, but I, I do note that you then were appointed Queen's Counsel in 2014. What was really the, the background to going from senior to, to Queen's Counsel? Ah, well, this was uh, a great culture war uh, that went on in the state of Victoria and also went on in many other states of Australia. So uh, if you go back to the 1990s, um, there was a push in Australia to abolish the rank of Queen's Council by parliaments and replace it with the rank of senior council at about the same time that Australia was debating whether to become a republic. then in uh, uh, about the second half of the last decade, uh, Queensland was the first Australian state to break ranks. They had a conservative government and they uh, reinstated the rank of Queen's Council. Uh, Victoria copied suit. We were the second state to do so in 2014. So everyone who had been appointed senior council had the option of becoming Queen's Council. And... uh, uh, a handful of people didn't, so we still had senior council SCs in Victoria, but overwhelmingly those offered the opportunity and that's been QCs. Um, I've always been a bit conflicted about it, so I'm, I'm a Republican and uh, I was in favour of the abolition of the rank of QC, but when it was reinstated, the concern was that we would have these dual tracks of senior council and queen's council and we'd spend the rest of our career explaining why a senior council was exactly the same as a queen's council. So I selfishly went with the uh, 
that could converge with my SC to the QC. Now, in Australia now, in New South Wales, abolished the rank of Queen's Council back in the 1990s and has not reinstated it. So there are no QCs in New South Wales. In Victoria, most senior council are now QCs. In Queensland, it's the same position and uh, there's been an active debate going on in South Australia and in other jurisdictions. So um, it's a bit of a cultural war, I think. Can I just quickly ask you about your uh, your time uh, in Chambers in the UK at One Brick Court? How was that experience for you? So uh, for a number of years, I had a door tenancy at One Brick Court in uh, London. One Brick Court actually is um, um, uh, sort of older, about 18 months ago, but they were two great media law sets and, and some other satellite sets of barristers in England. Um, and uh, as I was publishing books with Oxford University Press in the UK, uh, you know, I, I, I linked up with one book court. It's a fantastic set of you know some of my heroes in the law who I've got to you know, meet and see in action. People like Richard Rampton, QC, who argued polling peck, you know, fish defamation was and that was one of the great cases of the 20th century. Uh, so it was a great thrill for me to. Uh, connect up with and make uh, make contacts to to those chambers, but unfortunately, and as part of I think a fallout in part from the um, amendments to defamation legislation in England, which made it harder for plaintiffs to sue and therefore caused a bit of a drying up of the jurisdiction. You know, those chambers uh, um, uh, um, disappeared about two years ago, and, and now they have uh, got the main set of chambers in London doing this sort of work in five Roman buildings. Uh, uh, which picked up a lot of the barristers from Monday Court. Now, Matt, I, I want to ask you about the future. Um, you've packed so much in in the last uh, quarter of a century. What are your plans for the future? Well, I, I'm having a great time. Just uh, I'm, I'm uh, you said at the outset, I'm a vice president of the Australian Bar Association at the moment. So I'm really enjoying. Uh, being involved in shaping the direction of the Australian bar and trying to encourage it to take a more national and less sort of state parochial oriented approach. Uh, continue to enjoy practicing law and doing uh, doing cases. I find defamation cases endlessly fascinating just because of that fundamental conflict that's inherent in all of them. The, the plaintiff always has a genuine grievance in any serious case, and the defendant always has a an arguable basis for justifying why they did what they did. I, I, I never cease to be fascinated and stimulated by it. Um, I do a bit of teaching uh, at, uh, at Melbourne University, which I enjoy. So no, I'm, 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 I'm very happy. I'm looking forward, looking forward to the end of the pandemic and returning to in-court advocacy and, uh, and, and seeing, seeing our, our profession in our country get back on its feet. Fantastic. Look, Dr Matthew Collins QC, thank you very much for your time today and your contribution to the law of defamation in the Commonwealth. So thank you. Good pleasure. Enjoy talking to you, Chris. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under.